And we are the Books Boys. The one and only. This is the Books Boys True. Get it? Buy it. Books. Woo! Nailed the intro in two takes. Yes. <laughs> you sent it to me and I'm like, okay, <laughs> is this a recorded thing? <laughs> <laughs> We've also got little Alfred with us. There he is, up to his usual tricks. And uh, it's time for Books Boys. Um, so this is the first episode without um without pj but alex you've been promoted from playboy to full books boy so yeah yeah i mean executive director of books carry it in your stride how many did pj usually read one okay okay so (laughs) i i have met the bare minimum i am qualified yes you've met the target (laughs) so that's great (laughs) okay good good I mean, normally what I would do is I would cover some of my books and then PJ would do Haze in the Middle and we can still do that. But I'm excited just to hear, like, why don't you tell us what your book was? Because it ties into some stuff we did recently. Yeah. Uh, so the book I read was Hadrian's Empire. And yeah, the reason I was so interested in reading this book was because, well, we just went to Greece and uh, there were lots of things named after Hadrian. And we're like, who in the world is that? <laughs> I'd heard of him from just, you know, general Roman studies, but I didn't realize he was so historically important, I guess. And it kind of turns out he's responsible for like a lot of the stuff that survived. Yeah, Uh, we'll get into that, I think, a little bit later. But yeah, yeah, very interesting guy. And looking forward to talking about him. Awesome. I am... I'm going to just, I'm going to give this only 30 seconds because I just, I've got too much and I don't want to waste time on it. But following up from our Playboys episode on, um, on Tartuffe, I read two more, um, Moliere plays at the very beginning of the month and I'll give them 30 seconds each. Um, I read those learned ladies and I read the, what's it called? The would be gentleman. Um, and I just want to put it out there that I do recommend everyone to read Moliere and Tartuffe is still the worst of the six that I've now read. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these are it's the most famous yeah that and the misanthrope the but, would-be yeah. gentleman's hilarious this guy's bringing in uh he, he just wants to impress people i guess he's come into a bit of money so he's bringing in you know fencing masters philosophy tutors all these different people to his home to like be more middle class to engage in the right kind of pursuits but interestingly he brings in a, a music instructor a singing instructor and a ballet and then the intervals in the acts are ballet performances so, so that they kind of fit with the story so it's it's, it's done very nicely so I'm guessing like the first act, like it would just be them doing terribly and then getting better as they keep going or something. Kind of like he's the fool the whole time. So he doesn't really get improving anything. Most people are just uh, happy to take his money. Um, but then as they're rehearsing, the rehearsal then is the ballet performance that you see, which is kind of cool. So it's done in a, in a nice way like that. Um, and the learned ladies, I, I remember even less of this one, but... It was basically something about this, again, a philosopher had gone in to hang out with his family 
and they try to make him marry one of the daughters, but of course they already loved someone else. Turned out the philosopher was a charlatan. He was only there because they were giving him money, you know? So it's a kind of comedy of that. The mother's like, oh, this guy is so great. And then of course he's not. Almost similar to Tartuffe, actually. It is just Tartuffe, <laughs> I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> so that's those two. And I do like um, I do like Moliere. So I read some Dumas. This will surprise no one. Yay! Did you read some Balzac as well? Uh, no, but I read Galdos, so it's close. <laughs> so this book is called Chico the Jester. Uh, it's it's one of those ones where, again, you got to figure out what you're reading. It's a sequel to a book I read a couple months ago. Um, I looked it up online. I couldn't find a novel called Chico the Jester. I found a different novel, which then it said this novel was born from a short story called Chico the Jester. But I've got a 400-page uh, short story here, it would seem. <laughs> so, I mean, for Dumas, that is about a short story. Yeah, yeah. But whatever it is, it's it's here, and I liked it. So they're all... Essentially, we've 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 got um, this period of time where we have Catherine de Medici. Her son, Charles, is the King of France. That was in the previous book I read. Charles gets killed by his brother, Henry, at the end, and now this book takes on. Henry's the king... And Catherine only really comes up once near the end because she's kind of... Uh, you might have heard of Catherine de Medici. She's quite a famous... Mm. She's friends with Nostradamus, at least in some TV shows I've seen. Um, he's a very famous uh, character. But this guy, this king, has a jester called Chico. But he's not a silly jester. He's a very clever jester. And he's really the only friend the king has and the only confidant that he has. So while ever, you know, he, he's getting up dancing around on tables and being silly, but then actually he's kind of almost running things at, at times, you know? Okay. It's a so nice setup. The way you were saying it makes me think of like the clown from King Lear. Um, it's yeah. Kind of a clown from a tragedy in a way. Yeah. Like he'll do some funny things, say some funny things, but also like, yeah, not really in a good position. Yeah. And I'll give you an example at the beginning. They go to a party and Chico says, I'm going to be the king. You can be Chico to the king. So he goes around as the king, but what he's really doing is trying to see, you know, how will people react to the king? What's the gossip? What are they saying? So he's doing silly things, but there's always like a motive behind it. You know, he's not he's not a jester with a silly hat and bells just dancing around, you know. Um, but I really, really like Chico. He has a friend called Gornflot, who's a kind of a monk. And Wait, what man. he does is he he assumes his friend's place, goes into this um, meet- secret brotherhood meeting, and of course, it's the prince leading it, and they're going to try to overthrow the king. So the the deepest root of this novel is it's a not say political thriller, but it's a conspiracy to overthrow the king. It's it's political developments essentially, um, and the prince is the Duke d'Anjou. That's the brother of the king, and he wants to overthrow. And then the third brother also wants to overthrow. <laughs> so it sounds like it has some fun things to it, but it also sounds like it's pretty standard yeah a lot of these dumas are like this and honestly in parts they can be boring when it's just political machinations working their way through chico really is there to make it exciting he's there to tr- he's there to turn a political text into a novel essentially okay okay um but he does discover this brotherhood very similar to some other dumas stuff uh, joseph balsamo uh discovers a secret brotherhood and the funny thing is he ends up getting Gornflow in trouble for it and then Gorenflow gets exiled and has to leave. So they off they go on a donkey, and it turns into like Don Quixote or something, like wandering around <laughs> France on a, on a donkey. You know? Wow, that's actually trying to find food and going on adventures. And then they come, they they get back. It's it's short lived, but it's almost a parody, I think, of like those kind of those kind of works, you know. But in the meantime, there's a lot of other stuff going on, which I'll just quickly kind of touch on. So there's um, 
there's the Saint Luc uh, families. There's the, the husband and wife. And the funny thing is, the husband's in the Louvre, which was, of course, where the king lived at that time. And the wife has to dress in disguise, a la Shakespeare, to sneak in to the Louvre just to see her husband a day after they got married, <laughs> because apparently political business has to take precedent. And then there's, you know, people getting locked in the Louvre as political prisoners and all this kind of stuff. So it, it has a lot of like needless complications and it's not the best written. If I seem like I'm a little bit all over the place, it's because the book kind of is. It doesn't flow as nicely as, you know, some other Dumas, to be honest. Uh, it also has about eight more sequels. So. Oh, wow. Are you going to read all eight <laughs> No, of them? no. If I pick one up, maybe, but I'm not going to go ahead and look for them. You know, if I, if I happen to see one, it's, that's different. So which number of book is this in the series? This is two. Okay. Um, okay. And like most Dumas books, the first one was quite good. The second one, not a lot is really happening in it. And then no one even cares about the rest. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many that are just that feel lost to time, like you might find them. And it's like, oh, yeah, there's not even a Wikipedia page about this book. Yeah. Um, Or if there is, it's under a different name, and you can't find what you're reading. And it was released in six parts, but then it was released in 11 parts. And then you got volume three, and you don't know what you're reading. Yeah, (laughs) that's too bad. Yep. But um, there are some funny, there are some funny bits in it. So not just because of Chico, it's just because Dumas is a good writer. So he does put in a little bit of the usual um, humor, you know. And part of that is because of Chico. Part of it's just, for example, this one this one lady is complaining massively that she wasn't kidnapped. She's saying, like, I'm pretty enough. And this guy's dashing and strong. Like, he could have just come in and carried me off, but he didn't. He mustn't like me, you know. Just like kind of little bits of that. And there's another very funny bit where there's a siege and the guy says, look, your army's not very good because um, 500 soldiers just got beaten by three men. You can't go around with that army. And the guy <laughs> says, no, but I can go around with the three men who defeated them. Yeah. So, so he then takes on those three instead. You know? And this is the intro to the Three Musketeers. It's essentially, it's got some little forebodings and and reminders of other kind of books. You know, I don't know whether it was written before or after the Three Musketeers, but little glimpses here and there. They even have a pact of four men versus another four, um, which gave me some Three Musketeers vibes as well, like getting that gang of four together to go out and do their adventuring. Um, but at the end of the day, they're trying to kill the king. And there's a bit where the king says to him, look, he says, I wouldn't kill you. I'm your brother. He says, well, you were also Charles's brother. And you poisoned him, so yeah, that's not really a, it's not a very good argument, you know. But there's there's some other bits, just you know, there's other characters getting involved. There's one lady that everybody seems to love. There's this guy called Bussy, who's just this heroic guy he can fend off five guys at once without taking a scratch, kind of thing, you know. And uh, he gets hurt at one point, and then he loves this girl, but the prince also loves this girl, and they're all climbing over walls and sneaking into this guy's house to try to like steal his wife and all this kind of stuff, you know. And he kills him and he writes a note and says, we were hanging out together and he just happened to die. P.S. I did have a sword in my hand at the time. You know? <laughs> just happened to keel over with uh, some sword wounds. Yeah, yeah. It's like, we were standing around and then he died. P.S. We both had swords and we were thrusting. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Dumas. I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, if you if you read the previous book and you thought, oh, this is, I want the follow-up. Fair enough. But if you're coming at it from the standpoint where you've maybe only read The Cut of Monte Cristo or something, I definitely wouldn't jump into this one. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound like it. It it, it sounds like if you want to be a completionist, this is not his worst. It's pretty okay. It's 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 very, very middle ground. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. It is what it is, you know. 
So I'll jump on into the second book I read. We're going to try to keep the episodes a little bit more concise than uh, PJ and I were, were want to do. Um, got a very quick clip here from the author, Charles Salzberg, who we actually interviewed uh, in the past. Hi, this is Charles Salzberg, author of Man on the Run, which features master burglar Francis Hoyt, who first appeared in an earlier novel of mine, Second Story Man. Hope you book boys liked it. So I have the book here. Charles was kind enough to send it through to us. Um, we did we did discuss his previous book, Canary in the Coal Mine, and we, we chatted to him. This book's, in my opinion, uh, much better, actually. this is I mean, the, the first book was great, but this one I really, really liked. Uh, it's called Man on the Run. Got myself a little advanced copy here. Um, this one is a lot of fun. So Francis Hoyt is this master cat burglar, essentially. Um, short of stature, but he's the kind of... They, they kind of joke about this. Like, at first, you're almost tempted to think, oh, he might have gotten bullied for being short, or someone might have made fun of him or something. And then you see he's just this, like, very aggressive, angry, menacing guy that would beat the life out of you if you dared to say something. But then he's also charming and charismatic and nice and friendly. So it's almost like he knows how to manipulate people. Um, he's a very good burglar, you know, no, oh, the, the, the typical kind of like no clues are ever left at the scene, all, all that kind of stuff. You know, he's famous. The, no one's ever the expert him. and yeah, the yeah. one that's, it's someone's like, you have a policeman who's just like, it's, I will not retire until I catch this guy. That's Essentially, fine. yeah, almost exactly that, but not quite. This policeman manages to catch him, gets him in court, oh. and then he escapes and this is before the book, really. They just mention it. He escapes from the court somehow, and they never get him again. So then the policeman eventually retires. He's like, I did catch him. I got the closest I was going to get. He actually <laughs> robbed something from the policeman at one point, you know. And what's happening now is um, this this newspaper, well, not really, this, this journalist, I should say, is tracking him down. And she's not a newspaper person, sorry. She's a podcaster. And she does a true crime podcast. And she wants to get Francis Hoyt on the podcast. So she wants to do like a little mini, you know, six episode run all about his exploits over the years. Nobody even knows much about this guy. There's like one blurry photo of him from 10 years ago. And that's all anyone has ever seen of the guy, you know, and um, he's very well respected. And, you know, with all these nice dialogues of him talking to his fence, trying to shift goods. He's kind of a bit of an ass to them as well, though. Like he's very, here's what's happening. Here are my terms. I'm the best burglar around to do what I say kind of thing. He's not a compromising kind of guy, you know? I mean, yeah. When he holds all the cards, I think he can do what he wants. Yeah. But the vanity gets to him, and he lets the girl do the podcast about him. Uh... And she's a little bit scared of him. And he's, like, sending letters to her house, and she's like, how does she even know where I live? Like, you know, it's his job, right? He tracks things down, he stakes the place out, he looks for clues, he gets into her house at one point, and just, like, moves the milk around and a couple things just to spook her a little bit, you know? But he, he's willing to do the podcast, um, and these you know, he sets a whole load of restrictions. It can only be released for a week, and then it's got to be taken down. It has to be recorded at a location of my choosing. You know, there's a, there's a whole load of things so that people can't find out about him. Um, but then she wonders, she's talking to the cops as well as part of this backstory, and then the cops start to think, she's very interested. I wonder, has she met him, and should we then try to do some kind of sting operation, essentially? Mm. But the second half of the story is that his fence puts him in touch with a new fence when he goes on the run and moves to a new state. Uh, I think he moves from West Coast to East Coast or vice versa, but he gets in touch with a new fence. And they say, we've got this job. It's a mafia-run place. They're clearing it out themselves. 
to fake a burglary or whatever. What Basically, what we want you to do is break in. We're going to give you the information, the key code and whatever else. You've just got to make it look like a burglary, but we're going to make it easy for you. And they're just trying... I can't remember the exact reason the mafia want to do this. I, maybe it's just to get the word out about something. Whatever it is, they want this guy to pretend to break into their warehouse, essentially, their, their joint. Um, He's going to make a lot of money. And even though it sounds like this is too good to be true, why are they setting him up to make millions on this fake burglary? Like, that just sounds not smart. And he knows it's not smart. But then they kind of push it. And he's like, well, it's a lot of money. And... He doesn't even want the money. He just wants the reputation. Because then he can say, well, I broke in and stole from the mafia. Like, that's going to boost his cre- his credibility even more. And, of course, it all goes it's wrong. It's a trap. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that side of things is happening. The podcast side of things is happening. It eventually comes together. But, yeah, that's that's man on the run. It, it is a trap, essentially. Um, but he... He's like like a 30-year career of making all the right choices, and he essentially makes two wrong choices at the same time because his vanity gets to him at the end, you know? All right. It's kind of like a Hannibal Lecter cross with, like, loop on the third type of cat burglar. and Yeah, like, yeah. Essentially. Maybe, but the guy is charismatic not, as well. He's nice. not going to eat people, probably. But... <laughs> Although the girl is afraid of him. Like, yeah. He's, he, so the thing about him is he's never killed anyone, so that immediate risk is removed. But he looks like he could, you know? And it's like, mm. oh, maybe he's just never killed anyone because he never needed to, but that doesn't mean he wouldn't. And he doesn't carry a gun with him, but maybe he'll just beat you to death. Like, the fact that he's never shot anyone to death doesn't really seem to give her that much reassurance, you know? <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I think I was seeing something that uh, is very similar to this coming out in, like, a movie soon. It's basically a podcast, but they're trying to get, like, a real murderer on wow. it. Wow, like, okay, so okay. similar similar vibe. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like actually a very interesting type of story. Honestly, the the story is cool, and we get to see you know some of the other fun bits are seeing the girl snooping around because she doesn't want anyone to know that she's met the guy, but she's talking to the cops. She's got her producer, but she can't tell him she's talking to the dangerous guy. So she's trying to jump through hoops. He's also trying to make the fence jump through. He's refusing to jump through any hoops, you know. Yeah. Um, but they want him to, to hit this to case this joint. So he's kind of trying to argue with them to make them jump through hoops. It's a lot of tension um, because of that. I wouldn't say, you know, not like the last book, there's not that much kind of comic relief in it. Um, but it is a bit of a page turner. You know, it's probably only about 300 pages or so, I think. And I. You finished it in a day, right? Yeah, like two days yeah. or something. Yeah, like it's, 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 it's very good. Yeah. Hmm. No. I'll take a very brief break to just tell everyone to go to patreon.com slash booksboys, where we have um, some shows you might have heard of. Uh, Playboys, for example, is on there. We've got uh, some play reviews. We're working our way through some uh, Greek plays. Agamemnon will be up next. We've also got Dark Place Dreamers with our colleague Dark Place Robert, and a few other bits and pieces in the archives, a couple of film fellows and bits and pieces like that, and some interviews that I did um, with rock bands and all kinds of fun stuff. So go check that out for the price of a cup of coffee. And if you want to get in touch, you can get us at booksboys at hotmail.com or, of course, at booksboys podcast on Instagram. Um, I want to say that I haven't read as much. So I'm going to cover a book towards the end. It's a Gal Doss book called Meow. He's this little cat on the cover. <laughs> I'll get to him soon. Um, but I've only read half of it because I took a holiday, which is what I'm going to talk about now. Um, and then next month, I've got another holiday, plus I've got to finish this, so I'm probably only going to read a couple books next month, so it might be the shortest episode we've ever done. 
Um, but it does it does nicely lead into our sponsor, which is the Corporation for Taking So Many Holidays You Don't Have Time to Read Books.gov. Um, so if you go in and check them out, they will provide you with accommodation and flights so that you don't have to read books. So anyone who's been listening all this time and we're telling you to read books and you just think, I, I don't want to do it, just go on holiday. There's your excuse. Dot .gov. Wow. Dot I, gov. Didn't know that, uh, I didn't know that the government would be sponsoring things like this. <laughs> I love it. It's the latest initiative. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about your Hadrian book? Right. So Hadrian's Empire, it was about... Uh, what was it? 300 pages. Honestly, really short, but concise. Now, mm. it's called Hadrian's Empire because it is just Hadrian's Empire. Like, they do talk about Hadrian for, like, the first 25, 30 pages. Like, where he grew up, how he became emperor, who his mentor was. And then there's things sprinkled in about him throughout the whole book. But most of it is just telling about what the empire was like. So for me, who never studied like Roman history and all that, it was a really good snapshot, basically from uh, the time of Domitian to Hadrian's death. Mm -hmm. They talk a little. Were you disappointed? Like, did you want more biography? Were you hoping to read a book about Hadrian, or were you? Was this what you were looking for? So it wasn't what I was looking for, but I was still pleasantly surprised. So I did want a book that was about Hadrian and told me like what his life was like, what he was like as emperor, like even just year by year what he was doing but i'm i'm happy to have learned about like what it was like to be a slave what it was like to be a soldier what like hmm. the money at the time how much it costs to do certain things how much you make in a year uh what life was like for uh slave uh free people uh the citizens so I thought it was actually very interesting. Um, so it starts off, of course, with uh, talking about Hadrian's birth. He grew up in Spain uh, around uh, Seville. And like very early on, he became a senator. And so you know very early on he comes from a pretty rich family. Yeah. To be a senator, you have to have over uh, a million... Uh, I can never pronounce it. Sesterity? Sesterity, yeah. So that, that's upper class, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In like land and all of that so that happened early then he became deputy for the consul he uh went to athens and studied a lot and really really loved the greeks so he was huge Uh, he has my empathy yeah uh, yeah socrates (laughs) and all of them like he was even nicknamed the little greek wow okay (laughs) yeah yeah he's known as the traveling emperor or the little greek and i totally get it because i mean for what we've seen of Greece and all that, uh, I would have fallen in love with it too. Yeah, so. I mean, it's fantastic. And we, we really enjoyed our trip there in the spring. But also, we noticed that Hadrian had done a lot. So yeah. I'm not surprised he's the traveling emperor because we talked about this. We said, like, isn't there also Hadrian's wall in Scotland? And then we looked at all these things and was like, is he the most important emperor ever? I mean, he's really close. Uh, I don't know enough about uh, some of the other good emperors to say that. Marcus Aurelius is probably the one Famous other one, contender yeah. that we could talk about. You might be able to debate like Augustus and, but yeah. So it starts off talking about Domitian as well. He was a terrible emperor killed by his staff. And uh, then they had to get someone who was basically a stand in. So that was Nerva, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nerva died and Trajan became emperor 
Trajan was Hadrian's like guardian, basically. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So he was a he was actually quite important as well. Another one of the good emperors, I believe, it was Nerva who started adopting, and then right before Trajan died, he also uh, said that Hadrian should be the next emperor, basically. Okay. Um, good choice. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, um, now there's there was a little bit of a mess with it. Like uh, Hadrian wanted to be the messenger to. Uh, give the information that uh, I think it was might have been Nerva who died or Trajan who died so that he would be he would get in with uh, the inner group and get to know mm. people better. So, yeah, he, he really tried to uh, get his foot in the door very early. I think he was consul as well. Um, he he held I think um, a, a lot of the a lot of the emperors would have been consul or would have made themselves consul later and things because the thing about Rome is emperor wasn't really a a real title whereas consul was an actual political position so a lot of emperors made themselves consul as well to kind of legitimize their position. Hmm. Oh, I do actually have it written down. So Hadrian was the messenger to tell Trajan that uh, Nerva died so that Trajan would let him into like the inner circle and stuff like that. There, mm. There's a funny story, actually, I completely forgot about, but the his brother-in-law dismantled his carriage so that he couldn't be the messenger to go do that. Oh, wow. But okay. He, he found another way around it and did it anyway. Later on, uh, after he became emperor, he had his brother-in-law killed. Uh, yep. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah okay. you mentioned this. I was saying like, oh, good guy, Hadrian. He said, well, he did like have some senators killed and things like that. You see, I heard that. It didn't come up in the book. Like about the senators, okay. like he did have a couple people killed. There, he was also very interested in architecture. I mean, he was interested in everything. He yeah. loved uh, studying like uh, poetry, art. Uh, he would draw uh, domes basically. And one architect said, "Like, yeah, you're never going to be an architect or anything. Just keep drawing your pumpkins." <laughs> and eventually, they did use more domes in Roman architecture. To which the Christians said, oh, we can't have the pagans use this, so we're going to add domes. Then Muslim people said, well, we don't want the Christians to have that. <laughs> we're going to take that. And it basically started kind of sort of with Hadrian. Okay, so he wasn't just dabbling in architecture. He was actually good. Like He, he sounded like he was a bit groundbreaking with his architecture. I don't know if he was like the main one for that type of architecture. But he definitely did have an impact on okay. like the domes and the cathedrals with those mm. types of domes. Nice uh, later on in history. So yeah, he he impacted everything. He, traveling from Spain all the way to like Serbia and then from like Cairo up till Scotland. He went everywhere. <laughs> it sounds like he got around. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, he was really good with the people as well. When he became emperor, he actually burned the debts from the previous emperors. Wow. I'm just checking. So, he died at 62. Okay. Yeah, around 134, I believe. Um, yeah, okay. Maybe. So he was a really interesting guy. Would travel around to see the different uh, training regiments for the soldiers and would... 
actually really boost morale. He would give bonuses if they did a really good job and uh, give good critiques. And people just really loved him. What was surprising to me was that after he died, uh, his adopted son, Antoninus, had to really persuade the Senate to deify him. And I don't understand okay. why it was so hard for him to become a god yeah. when it sounds like he was so loved. Um, well, how was he so perfect? So, so it sounds easy. It's like, how do you be a good emperor? Well, you do a lot of important stuff. You are good to your army. You're good to your people. You cancel the debts. You give people bonuses. You put amazing monuments everywhere that will last for yeah. like a thousand years. And you're just the, the best guy. And I'm like, cool. Well, why didn't they all just do that then? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, a lot of them, they didn't... Obviously, they didn't have economic understanding mm. like we have today. So many emperors would print too much money or spend too much. It would all be like big parties. I think, so to put it in perspective, like one Sisteri, always going to get that wrong, would get you, I think it was 1.6 kilograms of wheat. And that's almost en enough for the month. Mm. You're okay. there. You need a million basically to be a Senator. There was one emperor who said, like, I I don't know. Well, actually, no, I think he committed suicide because he didn't have enough money to keep putting on parties. Wow. But he said, I only have 13 million left. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what? Only 13 million. Yeah, per guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I guess it would have been hard because those banquets, you would have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds mm. of people there and there would be so much food. And of course, you would like vomit and eat more and yeah and you'd have to like, you know have some so much food and wine and you know flute players and dancing girls and it's a big big event you know yeah um but i i feel like i learned so much from it um good for, like some of the games they had he he helped build uh build the pantheon in rome so that's a huge thing mm. for him but also he helped with the opening of the Temple of Zeus in Athens, which unfortunately is not really there anymore. Yeah, but... it was not that well preserved compared to some things we saw. But yeah, a, a lot like... of stuff we saw was was from him. And I was thinking, you know, if it hadn't been for him, yeah. a lot of the stuff in, in Athens wouldn't be there, you know? Like, oh, absolutely. We're really thankful to him. Like we saw Hadrian's Arch, which was just outside Temple of Zeus, and Hadrian's Library, which is still somewhat there. You got Hadrian's Wall. I think um, his villa might still be around. Mm. Like, baths and all that uh he helped build like a town antonopolis which was named after his uh lover um, okay basically an adonis of sorts so, so i mean we yeah. walked we walked around and we thought hadrian must just be the best and then i was half wondering you know were you going to read the book and it was going to be the opposite it was like oh no hadrian was an, a real scoundrel but it sounds like no he just was awesome <laughs> yeah i mean sure. there's it depends how you look at it. Uh, it seems like the Jewish people might not be too happy with him because he right. did like uh, have to deal with uprising uh, as emperor. Okay, and, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. But he did also help rebuild Jer uh, Jerusalem. So the guy just loved building by the by the signs of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he still helped. Like, oh, sure, I'm gonna stop this uprising but i'm gonna at least help rebuild, rebuild the it. city kind of sounds like he did his best you know because there's always gonna be problems you gotta kill a couple senators here and there you know there's always a few problems <laughs> sounds like he did his best 
I mean, for Rome, yeah, easily one of the best uh, emperors they ever had. So um, awesome. He was good. I could probably keep going on talk about it, but I don't. I think you have other books to talk about as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll mention quickly before I get in. I've only got two more or three more, but I'll mention quickly. Um, just back with went away with with Jarplace Robert and and another friend, and we went to, to see PJ. Uh, you might have heard of PJ. Um, went to see this guy um, in Gran Canaria. So that was that was a fun holiday, and it was it was one of the reasons I didn't get as much reading done this month. Um, we had some fun activities. We went to the house of Galdos, which is why I'm going to get to Galdos in a moment. You can actually see the the house that he used to live in or that he grew up in. It's a it's a bit of a trick because he grew up there with his family, but a lot of the furnishings are actually taken from the house he lived in in Madrid years later. So they kind of did a combo meal of the two. There's very little furniture from the original house remaining. Um, but it's still cool to see, like, you know, where he would be writing his books and things like that and his desk. And they even showed this is his toilet. It's like, could have done without that, but okay. <laughs> um, well, I did some other nice things there. And uh, that was um, that was good fun. And it was good to see PJ. And we did record some poems. So hopefully on Patreon soon, there'll be a Poetry Piles um, episode coming out. And we did some... Uh, surfing and aquariums and weird uh, hippie camps and all sorts of amazing things so it was, it was fantastic um i have two more books that i read and the first one is called petalos uh, petals it's a it's a mexican book by guadalupe netel uh, it's a book of short stories that was lent to me by my dance teacher oh who i believe you've met yes i have I'm assuming the audience hasn't. Yeah, I was talking directly to Alex there, not to the audience. I don't think that you've <laughs> all uh, met my dance teacher. All three of you, whatever it is. <laughs> so, Petalos. This is a collection of short stories by a Mexican lady. And um, they're basically stories about unusual people. So, none of them are kind of they're a bit weird, I'll, I'll just say. But I really enjoyed it. Now, it's a very short book. It's coming in here, let me see, about 130 pages. And that's divided into stories. So they're, they are short stories. This isn't a, you know, 500-page novel or anything. Um, <laughs> Something a normal person can do rather easily. Yeah, and again, I think I read it most of it in a day, maybe finish it off on day two. But, like, you you could sit down. You could you could take the stories. You know, there's, what, six, five, five or six stories? You could read one a day or spread it out over a week. You know, I think that's it's it's very doable. Now, I'd never heard of the author. I don't know that much Mexican literature, to be honest. Um, but I, I really, really liked these stories. So I'll give a couple of examples. The most famous one is, of course, it's, it's Petalos and other stories. Petals is the famous one. Um, you're not going to believe what the petals are. I'm not going to ask you to guess because we you would literally never get it. And the girl is called Flor, which is, you know, um, flower. Yeah. And the petals that she drops are actually her excrement. Oh, lovely. <laughs> so this is, and Flor doesn't know about this, though. Like, this is a story of a kind of pervert who goes into women's bathrooms to just smell, to just smell the excrement. Okay. They smell like flowers? It's because the girl's called flowers that the title's called petals. That's really the only, it's, you know, it's what she drops behind, essentially. That's really the only reason. Um, huh. It's a weird one, but yeah, that's yeah. the story. He just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
he just goes in and he can tell her smell. He's like, you know, her scent is so much different from everyone else's. And he goes around all these different, you know, cafes and everything. And he waits for her to go to the bathroom and goes in to get the scent. No, it doesn't really go anywhere. It's just that's, it's just a few pages about him being kind of creepy. That's petals. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I said there were stories about unusual people. Yes, that one's definitely unusual. <laughs> You see, I generally like the German like children's stories, which are just like the kid uh, like sucks his thumb and then it gets cut off. Like, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> I guess yeah. this is along Probably those some. those grounds. Um, the very first story we see, some of them are a bit lighter. So, I'll give you an example. It's a photographer, and I've not made very many notes on this one. It's it's not one of my favorites, but essentially, this photographer is obsessed with. He wants to catch. The moment the eye blinks. Okay. So it's just his obsession with that. With these like super clear photos that are just trying to catch the blink, you know? And um, and again, it's about 10 pages. So most of these, there's not a huge you know, plot development or anything. It's just a little snapshot into their lives. And, you know, it's really, really nice though. It's Some of them are interesting. So the one I like the most is this chap who... He has a bit of a mundane life, but he walks through the park every Sunday and he always thinks the park is so well kept, but I never see the gardener. So one day he goes in on a Saturday and he sees the gardener and the gardener greets him by his name. And he says, how did you know me? And the gardener says, it's my job to know everyone. That doesn't seem true, but I'll allow it. And um, what happens here is the gardener teaches him a little bit about gardening. And the guy who initially okay. scorned at it, uh, the Senor Okada, he really scorned gardening. He ends up really liking it. And it's kind of wholesome and good for him to get involved with this uh, stuff instead of his humdrum nine-to-five world. And the gardener tells him the flower that you're most like, or the plant that you're most like, is a cactus. And he really identifies with this and he starts doing things and saying, well, I'm doing this because I'm a cactus. This is like cactus kind of behavior. And he really gets into it. And he goes every week for a couple of months and he really, you know, goes to the gardener. At the end, the gardener says, I want to show you something special. And he has a bonsai tree that he's been working on. He's kind of kept it out back, hidden away. And he's been spending many years just like tending to this bonsai tree. And sadly, that's the last time he ever sees him. The next week he comes, the gardener's not there. I think he was in hospital, but he doesn't die or anything. But then the guy just never goes back. Hmm. So I thought it was going to be like a passing of the torch almost. Like, yeah, I've got you into this way of life. I'm showing you the bonsai. Now I'm sick in hospital. I thought maybe the guy was going to try to like take over the gardener or something. But no, it doesn't go that route at all. He just enjoys his time and then moves on again. Okay. I can see how that could be nice. But I feel like, yeah, there's no ending to it. Like, I'm expecting yeah. either something, like, horrific or funny or, like, important to happen. Like, uh, I imagine, yes. like, a Junji Ito-style, like, horror story or... Um, I just had to look it up again. But um, Struffel Peter, it's a German, like, children's book. But it always has, like, an ending that is supposed to, like, teach you something. Yeah, I suppose... These are, they're more like just brief snapshots. It's almost like they're one episode in a TV show, but it's the only episode you've seen. You know, it's just like, here's a quick snapshot into the life of an unusual person. 
and then we're moving on to the next one. And some of these are only, you know, 10 to 20 pages. There's, there's not really that much development. There's no sequel. There's no outcome sometimes. Some of them have outcomes, uh, but not all of them. But that was my favorite one because it was just peaceful and it was less weird. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I can I can see enjoying that. Um, and yeah. There's another one I really meaningful. like. This girl is describing this like attractive guy um, and she's kind of getting sexual in her descriptions. And at first I thought she was there with him. But it turns out that the lady he's about to have sex with is a different lady. And this woman is essentially spying. Um, and at one point she opens the curtain hoping the guy kind of sees her or whatever. So there must be like apartments across the way or, or whatever, you know. Um, but she's really, really getting aroused watching this guy with another woman and just wishing that it was her. And it's just this little snapshot into her obsession with the guy that doesn't even know she exists because he's he's got a woman, you know. And of course, she's kind of like, well, if I was there, I would do better than, than she would be doing right now. And, you know, all this kind of stuff. But open the curtain, hoping he notices her. And of course, he's not even looking in her direction because he's there with someone. But it's just this little snapshot into her obsession with him. Um, and I suppose that's what all these stories are. They're just little little bits of someone's life. Um, there's one with these guys who all kind of hang out on the roof of this house. And they always refer to, he's looking for this kind of ultimate loneliness and that's his kind of quest during the summer these kind of kids are hanging out on the roof um, and they're looking for the true loneliness and it's just their story of like one of them their their mother dies so it's kind of, that's a sad moment um and that one ends with i mean imagine this someone says, my mother has died and she says well no hug i could give him would make him feel better so i'll do yeah. what a mother does and i will give him my breast Okay. And then he just takes it and cries and just covers her, what she considers a part of her body she hates with tears. Okay. So I, these are unusual. People. I can I can understand that one a little bit more. It gives me like grapes of wrath feeling. Uh if you know the very very ending of that book. But I never read it. I should have I don't spoiler for Grapes of Wrath, come back in thirty seconds if uh, you care. <laughs> Hit the 30 second uh, 100 skip, year skip old <laughs> yeah <laughs> basically so her kid dies and she has breast milk then there's someone who's very very poor and just about to die needs water or something and she gives like her breast milk to him just okay alive it's like an older man and that's kind of how it ends right this one I suppose is it's it's similar in the face of it, but I guess there's more that psychological thing of like trying to replace the mother almost. Um, sure, there's a very psychological part for Grapes of Wrath as well. Okay, okay. Uh, it it is like it's very hard for the woman be doing that at the end. And, right, right. Yeah, so, yeah. Maybe it is quite similar then. Um, the last one is a diary. This guy's writing a diary to this lady's writing a diary to her doctor about her. Um, health issues really she pulls out her hairs and things like that she's got some obsessive sort of compulsions and she tries to avoid people and avoid dating and she meets this nice guy called victor and she really shies away from him at first and tries to avoid him and he says no look you don't need to you're trying to avoid me because of your problem i already know about it i have a similar problem and we'll, we'll be good together so they start kind of dating and try to get on together until it ends in tragedy one day when she has a compulsion relating to a knife. <laughs> so oh. 
you think, oh, they finally find it, and, and you know, this is the one guy that will understand her and be suitable for her, and then it, it ends badly anyway. So that's the most dramatic one, I suppose, and it's the last one. And that's kind of what I was expecting for the others. I was expecting like a twist in a mm. way. And that at least fulfills that a bit more. Yeah, I suppose the book ends with a twist, if that helps, you know, that that last story. So mm, fair enough. I have one last book. I've hyped it up mostly just because of the cat picture. It's the Galdos book. It's Meow. Um, very important. This isn't spelled M-E-O-W or anything. It's spelled M-I-A-U. And that's actually incredibly important. So the title of the book is probably the best bit about it, if I'm going to be honest. Um, because the title means something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so oh no, is this another, like, um, what is it? Uh, anyway, go on. Can't I have it. it here. The M-I-A-U stands for something. In Spanish, obviously. So it okay. stands for morality. Then for some reason in English, income tax. <laughs> then aduanas, which are customs. And then a unificación de la deuda. So unifying debt. So okay. these are like economic kind of policies, I guess, right? So that's that's what the MIAU stands for. Um, but also the second aspect of that is that it's about this family who kind of look like cats. So it's this guy, he's worked 35 years in this kind of corporate job. It might even be a government job. I can't quite remember. And he's two months from retirement and they decide we're going to lay you off now and you're not going to get your pension, basically. And it's this sad tragedy for him. He's like, but in two months time, I would have got this full pension. Now I can't feed my family. And he's got these three women living with him. I guess it's his wife and her two sisters or whatever. And they look like cats and people call them like less meows, like the cats, cat family, cat ladies. And that plays into it. So the MIAU stands for something, but it's also meow because the family look like cats, hence the photo. But also, PJ told me that the book is set in Madrid, and in Madrid there's a slang that they call Madrid people gatos, which is cats. So there's like a third part to the title. The title's very clever. There's a lot going on with the title. And that's the best part. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I I was about to say, like, is this another Middlemarch? That's what I was trying to think. Like, yeah, it's yeah okay. I mean, the other my thing version think... has hundred pages of you know introduction and notes and scholarly okay. texts and whatever. But the actual book is probably about three to four hundred pages. I'm only about halfway, to be honest. I need a few days just to finish it off. Um, I got sidetracked on holiday. What I'm reading so far is fine. It's enjoyable enough. It's a bit slow. I've read better Galdos. You know, he has three really famous okay. books, Dona Perfecta, Misericordia, and Marianella. Um, and PJ and I refer to something that's super dr- melodramatic as Marianella dramatic, because that's a really dramatic book. This one is just like, oh, there's some people hanging around and it's sad, you know. Okay. Yeah. So not a lot is happening. But essentially, the, the main sadness is this guy's, you know, he's, his whole economic situation is ruined, right? So he's going around trying to talk to like, I'll write a letter to this guy. He used to like me. He'll take me in and he'll get me a job. And is it, no, he won't. You know, your connections were all bogus or they only worked while you were in an important position. Nobody really cares about you anymore. So there's that kind of fall from grace, that sad aspect for him. Yeah. Meanwhile, there's a situation, there's some love stories with... Uh, so the funny thing is as well, the wife is called Doña Pura, which is like pure... But it but made me think her, of her sounds right? like yeah, yeah. <laughs> that extra little cat reference as well. Um, and they mentioned <laughs> that you know there was always the, the town is always laughing at them because they look like cats, kind of cat-like faces and everything. So they're a little bit maligned. 
the one the one lady she's always they used to have money so she's always bringing people to the house to see all these fancy things they have look how old these curtains are these amazing you know embroidered fantastic curtains we can't afford to eat but as long as the neighbors see our curtains they'll think that we're rich you know and, and see all our fancy furniture and it, it's really about them keeping up appearances when really they should be selling that stuff and trying to feed themselves you know but they, they they're really obsessed with status so keeping up appearances literally yeah, that yeah. show that's true my favorite tv <laughs> show ever <laughs> so it's it's no, kind I of um, come on oh uh, talk to you <laughs> So it's kind of um, sad, you know, the sad aspect of this. And, and that's something Galdos, Galdos is considered the Spanish Dickens or Balzac. Okay, okay. Honestly, so far... I, I like him, but I do think he's the weakest of the three Dickens, then Balzac, then Galdos, probably. You see, I was going to say, like, this might be a bit more like Tale of Two Cities type of uh, Galdos or something. Yeah, I suppose even even Dickens' books I don't like. So that's that's fair enough. You know, I've only read four Galdos and I like no, I've read five and I like three of them. So, so. But there's a love story as well. One of the girls, she's going to marry. And there's a little kid, Luis. And he's always saying, are you going to marry my dad? Are you going to marry my dad? My dad's a handsome man and a strong knight. And he's this and he's that. And the woman's like, that's a bit weird because I don't want to marry your dad. I am engaged to this other guy. But the dad, Victor, is kind of constantly. He's going in and he's really putting her down. And he's also then putting down the man she's meant to marry and trying to make it about him. And he really takes control of the house. He turns up and they don't want him there, you know. But mm. he just decides, well, I'm going to stay here. I am obviously a relative. I have the right to come. And they kind of, they never hadn't spoken to him in a while or whatever. They'd fallen out with him. But he just kind of reinstalls himself in the house and almost kind of takes over while they're all in their distraught situation. Um, and tries to get himself with the woman right up until the point where she eventually starts to give in and say, okay, I am having thoughts about someone other than my boyfriend, my, my fiance. I do like this other guy. And then he's like, Oh no, no, you should just stick with your fiance. You know, she's kind of just manipulating her emotions in that sense. So he's the villain of the piece. Um, but I, I can't say where it goes because I'm only halfway through. So I don't know, you know, what happens if there's a big, happy ending if there's a twist i don't know what happens to the characters but so far he seems to be the villain and this these these sisters one's obsessed with status one seems to be a bit irrelevant and the other one is just described as like the perfect you know virtuous self-sacrificing doing everything for everyone else kind of um kind of woman so that's where i'm at with that one but i'm gonna finish it i'm gonna spend the next few days finishing it um, and then I'll start into next month's um, readings. I think next month I'm going to try to hit the Scarlet Pimper now. Yay! So I'm waiting a long time on that one. I bought it like two years ago. I'm going to promise that next month we'll do the Scarlet Pimper now. And I watched it in like French class, I think, over 10 years ago. Probably 15 <laughs> years ago, actually. Uh, <laughs> it is a fun one, as far as I remember. I Again, it's been almost 15 years, so it's hard to uh, hard to remember. Yeah. But I know I enjoyed it, movie version at least. Uh, I don't know how the book is. And hopefully next month I will have a book that I said I would finish, I think, on the two-year anniversary and still hadn't finished. It's a <laughs> Which... hint for everyone, okay. including okay. you. Good, good, good. I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> oh, you you will be. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just, I'll be very, very quick with this, but I forgot I did read one more book uh, called The Shakespeare Killer. And I, you mentioned that, yeah. This one, it was less about Shakespeare than I thought. <laughs> but <laughs> it, 
it was just about like uh killing lawyers yeah so there's a there's a serial killer who's killing lawyers and there's this fbi guy who's assigned to this team that's meant to be looking after serial not looking after serial killers catching them the opposite actually (laughs) so he's gonna (laughs) catch serial killers and by by profiling you know so by looking at the clues and thinking how would they think and what matches together and the ammo and everything else and and kind of creating profiles that will then help catch them and he's so good at it that the fbi decides you know we're getting used for political kind of stunts by by politicians and presidents they're blaming us for things and they're trying to use us what we really need is a new image so they make this guy like fbi propaganda boy basically and they put him on like Jimmy Fallon and, and all these like TV shows and do interviews with him and try to like talk about his successes to make the FBI look good on like an individual level, like someone that people might relate to, you know, when he's handsome and they dress him up nice and whatever. He doesn't want to do it. He's like, I've got work to do. This is nonsense, you know, but they <laughs> kind of make him do that. Um, and they send a reporter with him who, of course, then the love story ensues. Um, and I really, really liked this one. It was um, It was really fantastic. So... Oh, hold on a second. I do believe we are getting a call. Alex, I'll be back with you in a few minutes. Sounds good. Hello, you're through the books, boys. You've got Dean on the line. Who's calling? Doug Wood. Hi, Doug. We were were just uh, talking about your book, so it's a lovely coincidence that you've called in. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I am good. We're working our way through the show and all the books that we've read this month. And we were just talking about the Shakespeare killer, which I, which I loved by the way. Um, am I right then in thinking this is, this is the only book of yours that I've read, but this is the second one in, in the series. Is that right? Yeah. This is the sequel to blood on the Bayou. Uh, and is a, a further journey of the FBI profiler finding serial mm-hmm. killers. Fantastic. I, I loved it by the way. Um, it kind of makes me want to go read the first one now, so I'll I'll maybe try and pick that up because the the, the idea is is fantastic, you know, with the, with the profilers. Um, Demiglio is a fantastic character as well. What made you want to do it about FBI profilers specifically? Well, I was I was fascinated by the little known fact that in the United States there are, according to FBI statistics, as many as fifty serial killers out there at any mm. given time. I mean, we we so far exceed other countries in the number of serial killers we have, it's no one is even close to us. I mean, you could combine all the serial killers in all the other countries and they probably would not amount mm. to the number of serial killers we have here. So it's a little known fact. I mean, a lot of people are not aware of that and it's fascinating. And, and serial killers are just from a psychological standpoint as an author are really interesting people to write about because they're so complex. And, you know, not one size fits all. It's, it's, you know, most bank robbers are pretty much the same as any other bank robber. Yeah. You want to go in, take the cash and go, right? Serial killers have totally different mindsets and different motivations. And the profilers who go after them, these FBI profilers, which is a relatively new approach. It's only, it dates back to the 1970s when the programs were first begun. So it's not as if it's long established science. Mm. And it's not science. It's a lot of art involved in it. So it's, it's a great kind of puzzle that they go through and they put the pieces of the puzzle together. So as an author, you know, if you're writing, you know, criminal fiction, uh, that it's, uh, it, first of all, you've got a, a very uh, interesting character who's doing the killing and complex character. And then you have the puzzle solver and the profiler and he or she is putting together all the pieces of the puzzle. And then you interweave some other characters into the story uh, to make it, make it more real and, and interesting. It's what I like to call 
plausible fiction so that if someone reads my books, they walk away saying, I know that's fiction, but that could really happen. And with serial killers, there's a certain, you know, really uh, interesting uh, interest factor to a lot of people who who are curious about that kind of stuff. So that kind of motivated me to to go from the other works I had been doing mm. and decide to to take a shot at uh, doing something with a serial killer and profiler. Yeah, it's it's a great concept, and it's something I suppose that I think you'd be lying if you say that it it doesn't intrigue you. You know, the standard person, the idea of a serial killer. There is just something intriguing, as you say. Yeah, a bank robber, they just want to get money, whatever. You know, a lot of single <laughs> crimes, assault, even murder. Well, it might be a revenge motivation or something like that. But the serial killer is interesting because they're killing a lot of people, and it's very curious what makes them tick. And I suppose that is essentially what what the book is about to some degree. Um, yeah. And the trying to for profile. the profiler to try to figure out what it is that makes them tick to try to and this is literally what they do figure out what they that makes them tick so they can predict when they might strike again and then stop. I mean, think about think about the the, the legend of Jack the Ripper. It's still as pertinent today as it ever was. What yeah. what other kinds of crime stories have that kind of longevity and fascination with with people who are curious about it because of, of the fact that he, he or she. Someone named him Jack because that's what they named him. Uh, you know, Jack the Ripper was was a very uh, you know a very fascinating character, and the fascination continues to this day. And that's like you said, it's it's because it's different than your single passionate killer or your bank robber or your whatever. Yeah, it's a completely different ilk of people. And it does seem that there are different types, right? So you've got the type that maybe has some kind of vendetta on a particular group of people, and then you've got this almost charismatic cult leader type as well do, do you think that those are quite different in their mentality they're, i mean they're they're um all very different in in what they not all but but the, there's very variations of of what motivates serial killers right you know but they're all psychopaths yeah so there are certain you know consistent things about them they're obviously not sane thinking people and they get caught up in this complex, this, this, this motivational complex that they think they've got to commit these acts for whatever their justification in their brain tells them it is. But uh, but the, their justifications are all over the line, you know. And it, it yeah. is the, the the great challenge of profilers is that as many attributes of serial killers as they can accumulate by interviewing them and meeting with them and studying them, there's always another wrinkle that comes about that they they learn anew. Every single single time they they do this, I you know when I do my books, I do a lot of a great deal of research. So I talk to profilers and I talk to people in law enforcement, and and, and I haven't had a chance to talk to a serial killer yet. <laughs> but you know that, that's uh, that's hopefully not going to happen. But in any event, um, you know I get a chance to uh, uh, really learn about how this process evolves and how they think. And it's, it's quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, you preempted my next question, which was what's the level of, of research required? So. I guess you had to go and talk to people. You had to figure out, I mean, there's the statistics, as you mentioned in the book, about the amount of serial killers in, in the US. Um, now, part of that, I, I am curious, you know, do you think it is just that there is massively more serial killers or is it, you know, that it's defined slightly differently or it's looked into a little bit more and we're getting more positives? Maybe other countries would have more if they kind of put the work in. Well, I, I think, yeah, I, that's a great question. And I think that the, my speculation on the answer to that is that there are more than you know about in other countries simply because mm. most countries don't keep any kind of statistics like this. So if there's a murder in, in a town, you know, five miles away, 
and there's another one in a, in a town, you know, five miles in the other direction, they don't make the connection because they're usually in different towns. So, so the, 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 the serial killer doesn't say, you know, just kill in his neighborhood. Yeah, he, he has a, a wide range of the geography that he might, he might cover. So, so they, uh, most serial killers are not discovered in many instances because the, the dots are not connected. They're independent investigations. And it's only through, yeah. through luck sometimes that somebody says, hey, you know, this, I, I, didn't I read about killing like that in Something such and similar. such a county? Then they make contacts. And before you know, the, the car that gets you mm -hmm. know, built and they, they suddenly see that they have a, a serial killer in their hand. So I think that, that you know, crime in the United States is obviously you know, higher statistically across the board than, than most other countries. Um, but on the other hand, I think part of that is because we're so you know, into the statistics and recording of all this stuff, unlike some other countries. But I, while I do believe that our rates are probably higher, I think other countries have higher rates than they're, they're aware of mm. because they don't, they don't do quite the level of uh, statistical research that yeah. we do, or they don't publicize it the way we do. That's the, I mean, the other thing, I mean, if you want to learn about FBI profiling, you can get their manual. It's free. You just go online, download their manual, and you can learn all exactly. the stuff that they do about profiling. You know, so so it's it's because we're so open about that kind of stuff, the statistics come out. And so there's, there's different organizations that track this stuff and they report this stuff. And it's amazing how much you can you can learn uh, about the, the topic as a writer if you're willing to do the the research. The research. And, uh, it's it's good that it's all there for you though. Oh, it is. And, and the other thing that's amazing as a writer is, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be reading something and I want to talk to somebody, a person uh, about it. And, and I'll, you know, reach out to one contact after another, you know, six degrees separation, whatever. And I'll get connected to somebody that I, that doesn't know me from a hole in the ground. Mm. And, and I'll start the conversation and say to them, look, you know, my name's Doug. I'm writing a book. Uh, you know, would you like to talk to me about it? I'd like to talk to you about whatever it is. When I first started writing dozens of years ago, I figured if I made those phone calls, someone would go, I don't know who you are, and hang up. Yeah. The exact opposite happened. Wow. People love to talk to you. I've talked to, to criminologists. I've talked to wardens of prisons. I've talked to clerics and for, uh, uh, you know, sort of understand the Islamic view of some terrorism that I've written in, in books. I, I've, I've, I've talked to, uh, you know, countless people, doctors and, and, and scientists, and, and they all... I, I have yet, and I mean, this is absolutely true. I have yet to have a single one of them say, I don't know who you are and I don't want to talk to you. Not one. Not, not one. Wow. Not one. And I've probably spoken to, in the course of writing, you know, the novels I've written, I've probably talked to 100 people. Goodness yeah. me. So that's a good success rate. And how many novels have you written, actually? Uh, 10 books and seven of them are novels. Okay. So you're talking to an average of about let's say roughly 10 people per book and you're getting 100 percent success rate people want yeah, to talk never, to I you never, i literally never had someone say to me i don't want to talk to you wow i've even had i've even had uh, and one of my books talks about hacking computers and, and this kind of stuff i talked to a hacker and and you know <laughs> why would he talk to me i mean it was like if imagine you, if you called up a, someone you thought was a hacker through different connections and you said hi i'm writing a book about you know my one of my characters hacks into Computers, can I talk to you? Because I want to make sure I have the verbiage down and I, I make sure I describe what they do accurately. Well, I, I never dreamed he talked to me. <laughs> but he was in Eastern Europe. And, and I said to him, I asked him, you know, why are you comfortable talking to me? Because I always ask in the end, I'm just amazed. Mm. And he said, what are you going to do? I mean, I'm in Eastern Europe. No one's going to come and get me. You know? And I said, well, I, in my books, I always 
try to give acknowledgments to the people that helped me. You want me to give you one? He goes, no, that I don't want you to do. <laughs> so so I, of, of, the, of the many people I've spoken to, probably half of them, when I offer to put a uh, acknowledgement, from word half, when I offer to put an acknowledgement in the books, they say no. Okay. Well, that makes more sense. That's understandable. Having a conversation sort of yeah. off the record. Yeah, why not? You know, that's good. Cool. So it's, it's very informal. And uh, sometimes I send them excerpts from chapters and they'll, you know, read them and correct things. And I, I, I spoke in one of my books I involving um, rockets to the moon, whatever. And uh, I wanted to make sure I fully understood telemetry and all the things about rockets and, and launching people into space. Mm -hmm. So I spoke to a chief rocket scientist of one of the major independent uh, commercial um, rocket companies. And he spent hours with me explaining oh. stuff. But then he said in the end, you do not name me. Right. Okay. The, name. Then the, the, the funniest one, the, the funniest was I wrote one of the earlier books I wrote has scenes in Guantanamo Bay at Cuba. And I couldn't find out information about Guantanamo Bay. So I threw another bunch of connections, you know, sort of six degrees of separation kind of stuff. You can usually find somebody. I ended up getting connected to two ex-commandants, Marine commandants of Guantanamo Bay who oh. ran Guantanamo Bay. They told me all sorts of stuff. And at the end of the, the discussion, I said to them, I assume you guys don't want me to mm. acknowledge you in the book. They go, no, no, yeah. Use our names. We want to oh, be wow. And I said, are, are you sure? Are you telling me stuff you're supposed to be telling me? And they, and they both said, we don't care. We're retired. What are they going to do? So, so they're acknowledged. So it's, you meet the, the writing, the, the great, the great joy of writing is the research and, and the people you meet mm. uh, to help you write you. But so many people want to help you. It's phenomenal how, how helpful they can be and, and how much you can learn in the process about mm. people and about the subjects you're trying to write about. Because I write what I, what I said earlier, I like to write what I call plausible fiction. I want people to leave my books knowing that they're fiction, but saying to themselves, that could really happen. Yeah. That's I, I like a bit of realism myself. I don't I don't go in for sort of fantasy stuff that I don't find believable. What I, what I'm reading, I have to think this could have happened or could happen next week or something. You know, it has to feel real to me to to, to kind of engage with it better. And um, so I I totally get that. It's fantastic that so many people are are willing to to talk to you though, and you can tell when reading it. You know, apart from the few statistics, you can also tell this is a plausible story. And you can see the level of research that went in, even just talking about the profiling. You know, you're not just making stuff up. It, it reads wow. as though, okay, this guy actually has put some work in and, and knows what he's talking about, which is fantastic. That's what I'm looking for, usually. You know, it's like, it, you know, one of my favorite authors is Tom Clancy. Mm. Uh, who, you know, and, and the thing about Clancy is he was, he was even overboard on detail. Of, you know, you could you could design a submarine after reading in, in you know Don for Red October. I I don't get that far. Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes my editor will say to me, "They don't need that much detail." And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I I want them to understand how this works. I want them to, to see it. You know, it's but it's it's a it's an interesting um, observation you make because there are some readers who who really want to see you know the detail and understand it, and there are others who are who would just prefer to rush the the, the story along and. And whatever it is. So, if, you know, if you read if you read a Tom Clancy book, you'll see a lot of detail. A John Grisham book, you'll see a lot of detail. Yes. If you if you read a Robert Ludlum book, Ludlum book or even a Patterson book, there's not a lot. And it's just a lot of action, 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 action. 
you know, so so there's that there's that kind of yin and yang of writing, you know, that that's the author's challenge whenever, you know, you're if you're a researcher like I am, you're you're, you're prone to be like Clancy, uh, you know, and you're trying to make sure you don't get too far mm. into designing submarines. But, you you know, you yet at the same time, you give the, the reader, hopefully a reason to read your book and read enjoy it. the book in the first place. You got to find a balance, I guess. You know, I've read I read a lot of John Grisham when I was younger in my teens, and it's like, oh, he he clearly knows his stuff. But then there are those moments where it's like, oh, I I did want to read a novel though. This is a lot of information. Like I, I'm not here to learn to be a lawyer. You know, <laughs> that, there you go. Exactly. That's that's the thing. It's 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 you know you, we're not writing textbooks. We're writing fiction, and it's supposed to be enjoyable. You know, it's yeah. supposed to be the kind of thing that you want to sit at the beach or at night when you're you know hanging out. And you want to read just for the enjoyment of reading. So uh, an author, you know, you're always challenged with going from professor to entertainer. Because mm. you really want to entertain the, the the reader as opposed to teach the reader. Yeah. So that's always, that's kind of the, you know, always the, the difficult challenge in writing in that. Because you want to, you got to have a little bit of both. Hopefully more entertainment than you do teaching. But you got to have a little bit of teaching to get the, you know, the, the whole story across mm. to your so the actual book comes out in two weeks or so is that right the official release date is june 13th june yeah. 13th. so two okay but two weeks so i've refrained from going really any any in-depth uh, aspects of the story before the book actually comes out because i you know it's a fantastic book and i'm recommending it and i'd like people to to get the chance to to check it out first for themselves um but just to, just to dip in that little bit we've we've covered a few you know we've talked about the profiling and everything Essentially, we have a we have a murderer, and well, the title gives that away. It's the Shakespeare killer. Where did the idea come from to use Shakespeare? I'm a big Shakespeare fan. I do a second podcast where we just review Shakespeare plays, so I, I love do Shakespeare. You really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Because I, 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 I love Shakespeare. You know, in college, I took every course on on his books I could, and and the or his plays. And yeah, the thing about Shakespeare is that there's so much that people don't realize is colloquial mm-hmm. today that is all attributed to him and. I mean, it's amazing. His body of work is second to none. Oh yeah. So, so the so the premise that the person learns very early in the book, so it's not a spoiler alert, uh, is that this serial killer is killing lawyers. Uh, so, the natural inspiration I got from that was from Shakespeare's "First We Kill All the Lawyers," uh, and so that idea of of having Shakespeare intertwined throughout the book with quotes from Shakespeare and, and that's kind of makes it a little interesting. I think, I hope uh, for readers, particularly those who are into Shakespeare, there's, there's, there's hints of Shakespeare writing in many places in the book that are not literal quotes from mm. Shakespeare, but that that take up, you know, some of, some of his themes because he, he was a very, he, his themes were always almost very, very dark. You know, and it, like most of his, his plays were about, you know, death and suicide and love lost and, you know, you name it. I mean, oh, yeah, not a lot with much ado about nothing. Most of them were, were <laughs> you know, a lot, a lot tougher than 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 that was. So it kind of it fit. It fit the the, mm. the model of of being able to keep a, a theme uh, in in the book, you know. And, and the only thing I, I I regretted was that Shakespeare chose to name the guy who said that Dick the Butcher. Which is not the greatest literary name that one could come up with for a new book, but you know that's the, that's the name he gave, so that's the name he got. You know, so it was uh, 
it was it was that was interesting but that's why that's why shakespeare's in mm. there and it's funny to me as well because yeah you're you're stuck with dick the butcher right so that's that's the name that the murderer's kind of going by um but i guess the media preferred the shakespeare killer i guess that's a bit a bit snappier. Yeah, I think if I, I did a book called Dick the Butcher, it just I don't think it's, it might get on the Food Channel, but I don't think it's going to get on uh, any of the uh, lists. Yeah, of, yeah. Of fiction. <laughs> Can we talk a little about the reporter slash potential love interest, Lynn? Um, was that just you felt that there should be another character to flesh things out? Did you particularly want to to go down the, the love interest route, or or what was the thinking behind that character? Well, if you if you ever get a chance to read Blood on the Bayou, one of Chris Demeglio's, who's the FBI profiler, one of his problems is relationships with women. Yeah. You know, he's had some, he's had some problems. So, so, you know, what, what I do when I write, the first thing I do is I write little miniature biographies of every one of the characters I'm going to put in the book. So I, not that that's going to get in the book, but when I'm writing, I remember who they are. So they're a person, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to just kind of making it up along the way. I, I try yeah. to, I try to understand who this individual is that I've created, you know, in terms of, of, of the narrative in the book. So, so Chris DeMiglio, who's the FBI profiler, you know, you, got, you, you can't have just a one-dimensional character. You have to have a character that has dimension and, and, and issues and, and those kinds of things that, that people can relate to in, in either directly or indirectly, whatever it is. So, you know, in, in, a, in a good novel, you want to have some conflict in personalities and you want to have some kind of friction that builds towards a, a conclusion in the in the end of the end of the narrative. So it was natural for FBL profiler to have, you know have love interests and 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 a, a strong woman who comes into the into the narrative that has strong opinions and and is sort of a ma- a mental match to to you know this very you know sophisticated uh, profiler. So that's you know the kind of the the germ of the idea, and mm. then from there. You create the characters, and uh, and uh, you know the, uh, the 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 friction and the the conflict and the all the things you try to create that interest that'll keep an interest of mm-hmm. the it keeps the reader interested and also sort of makes them ask questions. It makes them wonder, you know. It makes them you know they stay makes you know what you try to do you you put in red herrings that are that are hints that yes. are not you know and, and and you try to lead different paths along the way and hopefully. You know, there's a few surprises that happen, and and uh, and but then when the surprise happens, you hope that your reader sits there and says, you know, I should have seen that coming, but I missed that one and missed you know, this one or whatever. I always find it interesting when I write my novels because I always try to have a, a twist of an end. You know, that's kind of interesting and in cliffhanger, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I'll, I'll invariably get some folks who will say, oh, I figured that out right away, and I'm going. How the hell did you figure that out right away? <laughs> you know, but but okay, you know if they figured it out right away, God bless them. You know they uh, they may maybe they read the back pages first and then they read the front. Yeah. I don't know. But there are some red herrings and there are there there are little clues that you know not 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 everything that's said turns out to be the the way the book's going to go. So right. there's definitely a couple times where I thought, oh, I'm reading. I, I started reading too much into it. Like, oh, maybe this guy's going to do this and she's going to do that. Yeah, and of course, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's, yeah. Good. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's good. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, what's next? Part of that's the fun part of it. Yeah, yeah. You're trying to, you you know, as a writer, what you're sometimes doing is you're teasing the audience. Yeah. You know, you, you try to, you know, surprise them and rope them in and then let them go. And and that's all, that's part of the joy of writing you know, is that you, because imagine if you just sort of wrote a straight narrative, you know, forget it. I mean, it would just, it wouldn't be any fun as a writer. You'd be, you know, the truth is, and I'm not belittling reporters, I think reporters do wonderful jobs, 
But their job is to report the facts in, in factual order, linear order, and to tell you what happened on a given day. Now, lots don't do that anymore, but, but when they're doing their job right, mm. that's what they do. Well, that makes for some fascinating reading short term. But if you if you tried to write a novel that way, I think it would probably well be a documentary, I guess. It would be a, a biography or it wouldn't be fiction. Yeah, it, it, it might be forgettable. Yeah. So what what's next? Are we going to see a third book, or are you working on something new? No, I, I'm, I've got a couple. I've got a, you know, writers always have a bunch of ideas, but I do have a. If I do decide to to go down another uh, a third uh, a trilogy, if you will, for Chris Demeglio, I have an idea. Okay. Uh, that is, uh, but I'm, my publisher swears me to secrecy. I'm not allowed to talk about this. <laughs> and and you know what I try to do, what I try to do, and what inspires my books for the most part is I I observe what's happening around us uh you know so my book uh there's a book named dark data control alt delete which is about a conspiracy between an islamic terrorist a russian oligarch and a computer hacker that wreak financial terror across the world uh okay. i was thinking about social media in there there was a there's a video you can watch from you know allegedly leaked from google but who knows it was leaked or not uh you know called the selfish gene and, and it's all about how social media can program people, social media. Oh, yeah. And we're seeing that big time today. So about two years ago, I wrote that book. And then, then I, you know, when I saw that uh, a lot of people didn't know that that China has a space program that's more advanced than ours and has astronauts in space and is landed on the far side of the moon. No one else has. They're far more advanced than we are. So I came up with the idea of, of dragging on the far side of the moon. So I, I try to pick up things that are happening. That are relevant, yeah. yeah. And turn them into, into an interesting novel with some twists and turns in it. So Serial Killers got me right now, and you know that's fascinating me now. But there are some other things that are going on in the world that lend themselves to some pretty interesting fictional stories. Sure. And that's why well, most authors pick that kind of stuff up. Yeah, it's good to stay on, stay relevant, stay with what, what's actually happening in the world. Let me ask you, before we get to the final question, do you want to take a minute real quick just to plug, you know, your web? Well, the book's come out on the 13th. Do you want to plug your website or tell us where we can get the book? Well, the book, you, know, you can buy the book. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, you know, wherever <laughs> wherever books are. I was going to say wherever books are sold. Unfortunately, there's not much brick and mortar left anymore. Sadly, Sad, yeah. You know, but, but <laughs> yeah, it, it, you can get it. You just, you know, sort of Shakespeare, the Shakespeare killer on either Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Cool. They've got some... They've got some promotional prices on pre-order right now. My publisher's doing so. Take advantage of that. But but then it'll be available on the 13th. And if you also want to know more about my my other novels, uh, it's douglasjwood.com is my author site. And you can see all this stuff there. And and I also do a, a lot of blogging on, on issues that are ancillary to the books that I write. Uh, so if you want to learn more about serial killers and profiling the like, there's a whole blog series that I have on my website as well that you can you can learn nice. about that. So we'll, we'll put a link a to the of, site as well. A lot of nice. writing. Cool. Well, Douglas, it's been lovely to have you on. I'm going to ask you the final question, which is something we ask all the authors we've interviewed over the last couple of years. If there's any existing book that you wish you'd been the person to write, what would it be? Hmm. It's a great question. I would God, there's so many that authors that I love. Um it would it would be 
something by Grisham. Okay. Because I'm a lawyer and, and I, and I, I sort of have a, a, you know, a subconscious interest in, in a lot of what he writes, having some knowledge base with it. It'd be one of his books. Okay. I mean, he, he's, I love his writing and, you know, but then I love Scott Burrow is another lawyer who I think is a mm. great writer. And William Patterson is a great writer. And, and McCart, I mean, there's so many, I guess it, that's a, that's a great question. And it's a hard <laughs> question for me to answer. I, I, I never thought of it that way. I, I wish I had written all those books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gr- Grisham's fantastic, but I mean, maybe again, I'm coming at it. I was 15 when I read them. It's a kind of okay. You read 10 in a row; they're all the same by that time. You know, it's well, what yeah, I call Agatha Christie. That's the one row, thing you know? that that's the one thing that um, that's interesting because they the authors who do that and have that formula and they repeat it time and time again, they do very well. Yeah, the reality, I. My publisher always says to me, why can't you keep to one model? And I said, because my brain doesn't work that way. I, you know, I, I wrote my first series of books was about a, about a woman who runs for president of the United States. First three books. The next book was about, you know, social media, you know, brainwashing people. The next one was about, uh, you know, a battle between the United States and China over colonization of the moon. The next one is about the serial killer. You know, so I, I go all over the place because that's what motivates me. That's what fascinates me in terms of what I enjoy doing, where my passion lies. Uh, but I, I get the model. I mean, the, the model for folks, you know, that are out there with, you know, dozens of books is, I mean, I, I, I can't quarrel success. No, I it's not my game. But, but, <laughs> but you wonder, I sometimes say, when you get to the fifth or sixth or tenth book that that person's written, don't you already know what's going to happen? I mean, how many ways can you tell yeah. that story? But, <laughs> but the guy, they're, they're great writers. And, and people love their prose and, and they, they sell books. And yeah. God bless them. I, I, you know, I can't, I wish I was selling books the way John Grisham and, mm. and, and folks like that were. I'm not. So <laughs> well, with your help, maybe I will. But, you know, we'll <laughs> we all just do what works for us, I guess, in the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Doug, it's been wonderful having you on. As I say, I'll, I'll um, put the link to your website and everything in the show notes. And hopefully people will, will check out the book in a couple of weeks when it comes out. Thank you so Thank much you. for your time. All right. Take it easy now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, wow. Well, amazing coincidence there. Just as we were talking about the Shakespeare killer, Douglas J. Wood, the author, calling in to have a chat with us about it. Fantastic. And the coincidences never stop. On Books Boys, that's the show. We did it. We finished our first uh, first full episode. Yay! I mean, I was on one episode before, kind of, sort of. I talked about 1984 and... Uh, yeah, you did. You called in one with that episode of Prince, actually. One of the authors that we interviewed actually really liked your call-in, so... Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I may have withheld that praise from you. I, I don't remember <laughs> if I remember to tell you or not. You you might have. <laughs> you were so, just patting yourself on the back for having me on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I took the credit. <laughs> exactly. But that's us, guys. Booksboys.com is the portal to all the, the things that we do. And, of course, check out Playboys and everything else. You can buy a T-shirt on there and check out some of our music on Spotify. There's links to, to various things. Tell your friends and blah, blah, blah. Uh, we're going to finish with a song. And usually I'll play a mix. So I do a song by me, a song by PJ, and a song that we both did together. Um, I guess going forward, it'll be mostly just stuff that I've done. However, uh, there was one song recording that I have with you in it. We did some sea shanties, and I thought that... Um, with, oh, no. with your permission, or without, <laughs> we'll end this episode with some sea shanties. <laughs> sure. So if the DJ would spin that record, we'll be back in about a month.
Boy. Oh, we'd be all right if the wind was in our sails. We'd be all right if the wind was in our sails. We'd be all right if the wind was in our sails. And all hang on me high. And we'll roll the old chariots along. We'll roll the old chariots along. If we make it around the horn, we'd be alright. If we make it around the horn, we'd be alright. If we make it around the horn, and we'll all hang on me high. And we'll roll the old chariots along, we'll roll the old chariots along, we'll roll the old chariots along, and we'll all hang on me high. Well, a night on the town. Wouldn't do a singing arm when a night on the town wouldn't do a singing arm. A night on the town wouldn't do a singing arm, and we'll all hang on me high. And we'll roll the old chariots along, we'll roll the old chariots along, we'll roll the old chariots along, and we'll all hang on me high. Now another festival wouldn't do a Wellermen come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the talking is done, we'll take our leave and go. Soon may the Wellermen come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the talking is done, we'll take our leave and go. Soon may the Wellermen come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. was presented by The Dean and Playboy Alex in association with Thaddeus Penguin Productions. Ah. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, the Corporation for Holidays Instead of Books. If you would like to get in touch, you can email us at booksboys at hotmail.com or visit us at booksboys.com. The intro uses Driving in the 70s from the Of Soundtracks and Garage Bands EP by Trapdoor. And the outro uses Dog's Light by Bravo Max from the album of the same name. 
All music used is either podsafe or used with permission. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash booksboys, get the show early, and all of our bonus booth fan the boys shows. And you can also check out our music on Spotify or Apple Music. Thank you kindly for listening to us. Please tell your friends, and come back next time for another episode of Books Boys. Read some books! He's Alex. Oh, that's what that intro means. Yes, you gotta read up the intro. Ah. Okay. <laughs>